everybody. Welcome to the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. My name is Ethan Jago, and thank you for joining me today. The Battlefield Theologian Podcast is for individuals who want to go deeper in their faith and understand what they believe and why they believe it. This section of the Battlefield Theologian Podcast, we are going to be going over the reliability of the New Testament. This is a very important episode. I hope you enjoy it. Come back next time for more of our podcasts on the reliability and formation of the New Testament. Have you ever asked yourself, how did the Bible get compiled together into what we currently possess today? Since the scriptures were written by 40 different men living in different countries and cultures over 16th centuries, how is it that it all came together? It was primarily written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And what does that all mean in relation to the New Testament? Well, we will be looking into this subject today, specifically in the history of the compilation of the New Testament as God's Word. As Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. The timeline of the Apostles, the writing of the New Testament, and the formation of the canon is a history that many are unfamiliar with. After the ascension of Christ, the disciples began proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ around the Mediterranean region. However, as time went on and the persecutions of Christians continued, the disciples were martyred, leaving the last apostle, John, as he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos in 95 AD. During the time of the apostles, the book of Acts provides a beautiful description of the distribution of the gospel, the planting of churches, and the spreading of Christianity. As the apostles wrote the books we currently have in our possession, most were originally letters addressing specific people, churches, and regions concerning the Christian faith. One writer is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 epistles consisting of the largest section of the New Testament authors and provides one of the earliest circulations of not just individual letters, but as a collection. 2 Peter 3.15-16, which was written around 67 AD, reference and reinforces the fact that the Pauline letters were already in circulation amongst the churches within the first century. There is evidence suggesting that from the early second century onward, that Paul's letters were circulated as a collection and was also accepted as scripture. The oldest surviving copy of the Pauline collection is the Chester Beatty Manuscript, or P46, 
which was written about 200 AD. Of this codex, 86 folios out of 104 are contained. The Chester Beatty manuscript and other biblical papyri in the same collection were a part of the Bible of a Greek-speaking country church in Egypt. However, we have earlier documentation supporting the distribution of the Pauline letters from the early church fathers. Clement of Rome, who died in 100 AD, pastored the church in Rome from 90 to 100. Clement was pastoring the Roman congregation when the Apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos. There is strong potential that the Clement mentioned in Philippians 4.3 is the same person since Philippians was written in the early 60s. Clement wrote one letter that was written in the mid-90s addressing the church in Corinth from the church in Rome. This letter was known as Clement's Epistle to the Corinthians. In this epistle, Clement addresses the division and infighting that is still ongoing within the church in Corinth, which is the same issue Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This early church father demonstrates that Paul's letters were still in circulation and that Clement and other church leaders had access and availability to the circulation. Let's briefly look at the circulation of the early New Testament manuscripts to understand why we do not have any of the original manuscripts and to answer the question on why that is not a crucial issue. Let's go back to the Apostle Paul and his letters to the churches in Galatia. The letter of Paul written to the churches in Galatia was sent in one copy with the final paragraph being written in his own hand according to Galatians 6 verse 11. This copy would have been taken from one church to another. As the letter would make its way from church to church, scribes would transcribe and copy the letter before passing it on, making a copy for themselves. Now, depending on the education level of the scribe, their knowledge of the Greek language, remember, there was no Greek dictionary at this time, the scribe could sometimes make nonsensible errors leading to potential variations from the original. 70% of the variations that we see today, identified in New Testament textual criticism, is primarily spelling differences and is insignificant for changing the meaning of the text. Additionally, the scribe may not have been transcribing word for word, but rather going sections at a time. The primary source during the time of the apostles and distribution of the letters were written on papyri. Papyri is a writing material that is made from the papyrus plant, which is a reed that grows around the marshy areas around the Nile River. The plant was broken down into strips and then laid out into two layers running horizontally and vertically. Then was pressed and dried to form a papyrus sheet. Then, typically the pieces were joined together to form a roll. When papyrus was formed into a roll, the average life expectancy was about 110 years. However, as the letters were passed from church to church and individuals would be handling the papyri, the oil from the hands would wear down on the papyri and would increase the breakdown rate of the materials eventually leading to the papyri being unreadable. However, due to the overwhelming amount of copies, when one compiles all of the transcriptions together, we can accurately pinpoint the variations and come to an understanding of what the original document said. We do not know exactly when all of the letters of Paul were completely together, as some of the earliest circulations of Paul did not include the pastoral epistles, and some did. However, we do know that due to the rise of Marcion's canon, the early church fathers took deliberate steps to compile the entire New Testament and the Old Testament into one document. 
Marcion is the first person known to us who published a fixed collection of what we call New Testament books. Others may have done so before him, and if so, we have no knowledge of them. However, he rejected the Old Testament as having no relevance or authority for Christians. His collection was therefore designed to be a complete Bible. Marcion was born about 100 AD at Sinope, a seaport on the Black Sea coast of Asia Minor. His father was a leader in the church of that city, and Marcion was brought up in the apostolic traditional faith. Of all the apostles, the one who appealed to him most strongly was Paul, to whom he became passionately devoted, concluding ultimately that he was the only apostle who preserved the teachings of Jesus in its purity. He embraced with intelligence and commitment to Paul's gospel of justification by divine grace apart from legal works. However, Marcion, in reading Paul, presumed Paul's refusal to allow any element of law-keeping in the message of salvation of the Jew to be an implication that the Old Testament law and the Old Testament itself had been replaced by the gospel. Not only did Marcion regard Paul as the only faithful apostle of Christ, he maintained that the original apostles had corrupted their master's teaching with an admixture of legalism. Not only did he reject the Old Testament, he distinguished the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New. This distinction of two deities, each with its independent existence, betrays the influence of Gnosticism into Marcion's thought. The God who created the material universe, the God of Israel, was, he held, a totally different being from the Father of whom Jesus spoke. The Father was the good and merciful God of whom none had ever heard until Jesus came to reveal him. As in the teaching of most Gnostic schools, the God who made the material world was an inferior deity, inferior in status and morality alike to the supreme God who was pure in spirit. The Gnostic depreciation of the material order finds an echo in Marcion's refusal to believe that Jesus entered human life by being born of a woman, according to Galatians 4.4. In response to Marcion and other false teachers, Christians began to create a list of the books that the church recognized as canonical. The word canonical is important for us to understand as you may often hear of the Bible being referred to as a closed canon. The term canon is a word that means a rule or a measuring cane and is also used for other works that set the standard in literature and art. Now, as this term relates to the Bible, the word canon is a fixed collection of scriptures that comprise the authoritative witness for a religious body. When discussing the nature of the canon, it is important to stress that God is in control of all things, according to Isaiah 46.10 and Ephesians 1.11. God not only superintended the writing of the books, but also providentially collected and preserved those writings he inspired. However, this does not exclude human responsibility. In fact, God used human means to recognize and receive the canon. The church in no way determines the canon. The church only recognizes and received that which God has already inspired and preserved. The Bible was written over a period of 16 centuries by 40 different authors, yet it is remarkably consistent. Now let's return to the response of Marcion's rejection of the Old Testament and the formation of the New Testament and the inclusion of what constituted a writing to be inspired by God and canonical. Irenaeus of Lyon, living from 170 to 180, developed a principle called the Regula Fide, or the Rule of Faith. Based on varying lists of affirmations, drawn from the scriptures themselves, that were upheld as parameters for the authenticity of scriptural writings. He was one of the first to call Christian writing scripture. 
As we highlighted earlier, the letters of Paul were the first to be collected. 2 Peter 3.15-16 affirmed this and also referred to them as Scripture. Several Gospels circulated in the 2nd century in addition to the four that now stand in the New Testament. Examples include the Proto-Evangelium of James, the Gospel of Peter, and the Gospel of the Hebrews. The divergences between the various Gospels raise questions. By about 200 AD, the four Gospels and 13 letters of Paul were widely accepted. Eusebius, in his book Ecclesiastical History, circa 320-342, set out the first identifiable list of New Testament scriptures, dividing them into three categories. Here were the four Gospels, the 14 letters of Paul, 1 John, 1 Peter, and possibly Revelation. Disputed were James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John. And spurious were the Acts of Paul, Shepherd of Hermas, and the Apocalypse of Peter, Barnabas, and the Didache, and also possibly Revelation. Different communities, however, continued to follow their own practices for some time. The Syrian community used a text that harmonized the four Gospels well into the 5th century. The first list that corresponds to the current canon of the New Testament is found in a text by Athanasius dated to 367. This canon was affirmed at the Council of Hippo in 393. So, why did some get accepted and others rejected? Well, there were four criteria a writing needed to meet in order to meet the standard rule of faith for incorporation into the New Testament. The first is the apostolic reading of the text, which means the writing had to be seen as either deriving from the era of the apostles or agreeing with what the early church community understood as apostolic teaching coming from one of the apostles. The second criteria was that of Catholicity. This is a lowercase c and is referencing the United Church. The Catholicity of the writing had to be relevant to the church as large and not addressed only to a specific group. The third criteria is the orthodoxy of the writing as to not contradict the rule of faith as established by Irenaeus. Finally, the writing should be traditional, meaning the church utilized and incorporated it in worship from early times in the establishment of the churches. The book of Acts was important to establish the measuring of the individuals mentioned within the history of the early church and the practices conducted in Acts as orthodox. Next week, we will be looking at the formation and history of the Greek language. Thank you for joining me today. I hope that this gets the ball rolling in your court and you start to get information and you're able to put pieces together. There's a lot more that can be said in this topic. However, due to time constraints, we have limited it to specifically this approach. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us as I would love to connect with you. Thank you very much.